Good morning. Welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Well, today's message leads us to a most difficult passage. And for our study on discipleship, will serve as a strict warning for us concerning what is usually a very benign pastoral message about the Christian discipline of scripture reading, study, and memorization. Thanks for joining us today as we seek to be those who handle God's word with the care and attention onto application for which he has designed. When I was growing up in Florence, we had a neighbor who lived just down the road, uh, super old guy. I mean, he was old my whole life. He was old. Um, my parents um, knew him well enough that they taught my sister and I to call him Grandpa. And when he was uh, uh, younger, he worked in the mines. So Florence had some iron ore mines. And uh, way back in the day when those mines were still active, he was in charge of some of the demolition and some of the explosive work for breaking out those mines and uncovering the rock that was needed. And years later, after the mines closed... I'm not sure how legal this is, but he still had all the dynamite <laughs> from working back then. And I remember this one particular weekend that uh, he was helping one of the other neighbors push through an access road over uh, across some property. And they ran into a stone, a, a rock, a boulder that they couldn't move. And the graders, the backhoes, no tractor could move it. And so they called Grandpa. And I remember he, he pulled up uh, and his... Uh, and it kind of gathered a crowd, too, because those who knew what was going on were going to get to see some dynamite. So I remember being a kid riding my bike over to the back of his blue Chevy, and it was just like you'd imagine in the cartoons. I mean, it was this treasure box that I just had to look inside. And I remember as I got closer to it, I did get some stern warnings from my father to not mess around with any of that because of its, um, well, because of the danger there. And uh, So shoot, shoot me back home on my bike, and I can remember hearing off in the distance, fire in the hole, fire in the hole, <laughs> boom, and that giant boulder was no more. Uh, it is an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing if you've ever been around any sort of explosives. Uh, I could tell you, I could tell you more stories too that would horrify my mom about fireworks and <laughs> experiments I would do in my dad's workshop. But uh, here's the, here's the truth. Here's the reality of uh, dynamite: that it has a power unlike anything else, uh, for good or for bad. It has a great power, and that power can be used to move things that nothing else on earth can move. However, there is also great destructive capacity that also resides in dynamite. I'm using that as a metaphor this morning because as we're continuing in our series on discipleship, today we are going to reach what I believe is the number one greatest resource in your life next to the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit to bring transformation onto discipleship in your life, to make you a true and better follower of Jesus Christ. And that is his word. The scriptures given to us today 
are the number one greatest tool and resource in the life of a Christian to help engender and grow within them a heart that is transformed that they would more closely model and live their lives after that for which Jesus came to show us and redeem us in this world. However, I have to be very careful this morning because as I have even losing sleep this week, not just because I've been a little sick, but because this message is such a difficult message to give that I will fail in my communication to you today, even as a pastor, if the only thing that you get out of this message is you need to read your Bible more. That is not the message that I want to give. And I, I need to highlight the paradoxical nature of the scriptures. That you and I would see the true platform where boulders exist. Where are the granite slabs that need to be broken up? Because if you get that wrong, you can inadvertently use God's word incorrectly. Different from how God desired it to be used. And the word of God is unlike anything else. It is fixed and unchanging. It is the ultimate authority. Infallible and inerrant. Inerrant means without error. Not a lot of churches today hold to that. This church will never budge from holding to that truth. Because as soon as we do, you will find every form of human thinking and the thoughts of men to creep into that which will halt your growth onto discipleship. Inerrancy. It's a, it's a word we don't use very often today. I can remember being a kid out in my dad's shed working with him. My dad loved carpentry. And he, had, he asked me a question. He says, Ryan, do you know how you can tell if a board is true? And I'm a kid. And so I was like, no. <laughs> is it lying? I don't. What do you mean? Is it true? I have no idea what that means. So he's using carpentry language. Here, here's the thing with trees. As trees grow, there is a there is a both a bent in their sowing the seed and the type of tree that grows <clears throat> that will cause it to twist as it grows. It's not only in the DNA of the seed and the, the tree itself. It's also sometimes uh, brought upon by the environment for which it grows in. And so a tree that grows um, in a place uh, that has harsh conditions, it's going to weave this way and it's going to weave that way. And <coughs> Excuse me. Um, other times it'll be uh, storms or uh, heavy snowfall that can cause a bent in the tree. But eventually, and you'll find this with all lumber, that there is a natural twist to the wood that requires a carpenter's tools to remove out of it. Oh, don't you know that you also are woven in a type of twist in your DNA and that the environment around you, it's harsh. Uh, treatment is going to cause you and I to grow so that we're not true. My dad would say you could look at a board and there's a crown to it. And so you got to look and find that crown. The way in which those fibers cause the wood 
to twist. And so we would cure wood. We, we lay it out um, and uh, put um, stickers over the top of it so that the weight of that wood, that its participation along with the rest helps straighten it out. But when the carpenter truly wants to use it, that he would frame it and, and, and turn it into something that could be used functional in this world, bring glory to the hand of the master craftsman. There's one tool uh, almost above all others that is needed in that workshop, and it's called, uh, it's called a jointer. Some of you may know what, what a jointer is. Um, it's, uh, it has a 90-degree plane along the side of it with a spinning blade. And as the carpenter is going to take a piece of wood so that he can butt it up against another and glue it and form it into something greater than itself, he needs to make sure that it is true. And what happens is that jointer is going to, with a spinning blade, tear off a piece of that wood so that every piece that comes out the other side is perfectly flat. At 90 degrees, true. Now, if you were that piece of wood, how enjoyable do you suppose that process is? The, the, the word of God is like that jointer. The word of God is true. The word of God is immovable. The word of God contains within it the teachings that your twist needs to have shaved off and ripped and, and with friction and great wisdom from the Holy Spirit shaved down so that your utility can be crafted together with the rest of God's design for something useful to bring him glory. The word of God is light in darkness. It's a lamp unto our feet. It is your greatest weapon against Satan and against sin. It is God's self-revelation to mankind. You are and I are tasked not to add to it, not to take away from it. It is powerful in all that it asserts. It is transformative in our hearts through understanding. It will not return back to God void, but will fulfill the purpose for which it is given. It is sharper than any double-edged sword and will divide to discover the intentions of man's heart. In fact, heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will stand forever. Amen? And yet it is like dynamite. It can be used for great good if you know how to use it. The reason why I want to be careful with this message, and not just to encourage you to go home and read your Bible more, is because what we will see as we look into God's word is that there has been ever since God's kindness to deliver it an abuse and misuse of God's word. And so this is what we have to pay attention to today. Number one, listen real close. You and I, we live... In an embarrassment of riches. The world that you and I live in is embarrassing in how easy and good we have it. Do you know that for the full majority of human history, no human has been able to put their hands on a copy of God's word written in their own language? Most humans who have ever lived do not have the privileges that you and I have. 
We, we could download an app with over 300 different translations in our language for God's word. And it wasn't only but some four or 500 years ago, you could die for having a unsanctioned copy of God's word in your own hands. And yet today, what do most people do with their Bibles? Where do they find them collecting dust? It's an embarrassment of riches that we have. And so for disuse and for misuse and God forbid, even for abuse, I want to be very careful with how we handle this amazing blessing that God has given to us. Uh, We're going to be in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 23. You could turn there with me. As you turn there, I want to give you a reminder of some definitions we're using in this study. Number one, a disciple is a true follower of Jesus. And that discipleship is the process in the life of a Christian to mature you, to grow you through right thinking that leads on to right living for the purpose of making more and better disciples of Jesus Christ. That is what we are seeking to understand today. As you're turning in Matthew chapter 23... Uh, we are going to encounter Jesus addressing those who knew God's word better than anybody else. In Jesus's day, there were a group of individuals who committed themselves to the reading and studying and memorization of God's word. They were called Pharisees. Uh, They were called in reference by the people in the community as experts in the law. Sometimes even lawyers for the way in which they knew God's word. Clearly, and Jesus were referenced them as teachers. Because nobody knew the Bible better than them. In fact, if you grew up Jewish, you uh, as a young man, by the time you uh, turned 13, where they treated you like a man, uh, you would have had to memorize the first five books of the Bible. Now, I made our confirmation students memorize like one verse. Can you imagine? Five books. There are some commentators who will say that even a Pharisee, though, had to memorize the whole of the Old Testament. Can you imagine? They discovered through great diligence and study some 613 laws, which they could tell you precisely that they live their lives literally according to God's word. In fact, the name Pharisee is a word that means a a separatist. They saw themselves as such elite handlers of God's word that they were set apart from the general public of those who would be called God's people with pride claiming that their literal holding to not just simply the Torah was also a holding to whatever was written in the the Mishnah, which is the rabbinical teachings. They, they knew not even the, the word so well. They knew what the teachers said about the word so well. And yet what you and I will discover is that despite this, and by the way, not a single one of us in here could hold a candle to their abilities. Despite all of that, there's a great warning that's given when it comes to using the blessing of God's word. So with that in mind as a backdrop, let's just look together in Matthew chapter 23. We're going to read the whole chapter. Here we go. 
Verse 1, then Jesus said to the crowd and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their flacerates wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have only one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound his oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but, the, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, On the outside, you appear to people as righteous. But on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of the forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. 
Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogue and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. We're going we're gonna to end there for this morning. Uh, this is probably, without question, Jesus' harshest words. Notice he does not save them for those who are struggling in their righteousness. He aims them directly at those who think they are the most righteous. And what was it that these Pharisees, that these teachers of the law, what was it that they ascribed to and gave themselves to more than anything else? Well, it was God's word. It was the reading, the study, and the memorization of God's word. And so I find myself in a pickle this morning because my challenge to you is this. You should read your Bibles. You should study your Bibles. You should memorize your Bibles. But who should you not be like? All right, that's the whole message. That's it. <laughs> I, I, um, I, I saw Mara clapping in the back just now. That was awesome. <laughs> oh, man. I was telling Emily... Um, that I'm just, I, I have so much I want to say on this, but I don't want to put them up on the slides. And I said, well, because people aren't going to listen. And she says, no, people are listening. You just have too many slides. <laughs> so I made some slides to show you. I'm just joking. Um, I do want to list these out and to, to tell you that as the challenge would be that you and I would learn to read and study and to memorize, here are the problems with those. So when it comes to reading your Bible, and by the way, just because there's dangers with dynamite doesn't mean you shouldn't use it. So nothing in what I'm saying is an excuse for you not to be engaged within the scriptures. But be warned, there's a right and a wrong way to handle them. Here's the wrong way to read the Bible. Don't twist it. Don't twist God's word. There there is a, a Bible professor who told me that scripture is like prisoners of war. If you torture it long enough, you can make it say whatever you want it to say. And it's true. Uh, another a great author said uh, this phrase, never read a Bible verse. Is that funny? Never read a Bible verse. And it's the article A there. Because you sh- anytime you read God's word, you, shouldn't, you should never just read one verse. So never read a verse. What should you read? You should read the context that's around that verse. Additionally, I want to warn you in the weaponization of God's word. This is what the Pharisees did. They took God's word, not that they would apply it onto themselves, but they looked for a way to trap others, specifically Jesus. And so be very careful. If you reach for your Bible, so you're like, I, let me tell that pastor a thing or two. Let me find a verse. I'll find a verse. I'm looking. That's the wrong reason to read your Bible. You're weaponizing it in a way that God didn't design Also, you should not read your Bible out of guilt. I actually think this is probably one more of us struggle with 
Uh, because I guarantee you, we don't read our Bibles enough. Any amens? What? No? Yeah, I guarantee we don't. So, uh, yeah, I came to church, felt guilty. Now I better go home and read my Bible. Wrong. If you're doing it out of guilt, you're doing it for the complete wrong reason. God's not more impressed with you because you read your Bible. God's not just sitting there waiting for you to read your Bible. He's like, oh, that's better. All right, stay there for a while. That's not God. He's not punishing you. He's not looking upon you with disapproval. And your solution to that should not be reading your Bible more. God loves you. He could not possibly love you more. There's nothing that you are doing to add to his love for you. He has given you his word, not for his benefit, that he may love you more. For your benefit. One more that I wrote down, and this is a critical one. Uh, Be very cautious of reading your Bible unspiritually. Now, I don't know if that's a problem in our church that much. I know that it, uh, it's more of a problem as you go to seminary or Bible college. Because uh, you would read your Bible for what you could try to pull out of it. So this is more of a sermon for me maybe than it is for you. But that's not how God's designed his word to be read. He wants you to read it with a spiritual heart and eyes. And so before you go into God's word, and you should be in God's word. You should pray, God, give me the eyes to see. Give me the ears to hear. That I would be able to receive from you that which you have spoken to me. So those are four problems with reading. Let me give you four about studying. Again, even though these are real dangers, these are not excuses to not study your Bible. Uh, First of all, uh, do not study your Bible if you are neglecting your larger responsibilities. Now, I don't know if you can tell that I'm preaching to myself today. A lot of my week is spent in studying my Bible. But you know, the Bible tells me that if I desire to be single, single mindedly devoted to God, I should have never gotten married. Do you know the Bible says that? Because God has given me a, a gift in a family. And our, our faith is like a war zone landmine of ministers who have neglected their families by claiming what is for many men a bent on to career achievement and success with the legitimization that they're doing God's work or God's will, all the while setting aside the greater responsibilities that they need to have. Now, again, I don't know how much that applies to you, but I guarantee you it applies to me and maybe somebody here. Number two, uh, be careful with pride. The Bible tells us knowledge puffs up. That's what it does. Knowledge puffs you up. And so in your study of God's word, you better be very careful that you don't suddenly become proud with how much you know. In fact, a good rule of thumb to know you're doing it right is that the more that you learn, the more you should realize how little you know. If that's the conclusion you're coming to, you're probably on the right path. A third danger is um, academization. Hard word to pronounce. Uh, I've seen, uh, and when I worked as a missionary, I I saw this. Uh, There is like oil and water, an unmixable combination between ministry and the academy. And so you could pursue, I'm speaking to the elders now, 
Where's the other one? He's over there. We got to catch him later. Um, You're studying or writing papers for paper's sake. You're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. All right. No amens on that, but you're with me still. I know. All right. Here's the fourth one. And then this may be the biggest one. Uh, Reductionism. Uh, Some people will claim that it's possible to apprehend the truths of God's word, but they will do so without Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew or in John chapter five, and he's speaking again to the Pharisees, that their devotion to God's word was such that they thought they got eternal life through their study of the scriptures. But Jesus says, but these scriptures are the ones that speak about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. And so here's what this means for you and I. Any form of virtue in your life that's divorced from a relationship with Jesus is going to produce sin and pride in your life. And so when you study the Bible, you need to understand. This is why we began with reading that we would pray that God would open our eyes. Because what Jesus told the disciples on the road to Emmaus, beginning with the word of God in the Old Testament, the prophets and the writings, he said, These scriptures are all about who? Who are they all about? They're all about Jesus. They're all about Jesus. It's not about you becoming a better person, becoming a nicer neighbor. That's not what it's about. It's about you knowing Jesus. Let me talk about memorization for a moment. And just because there's a few dangers to memorization are not excuses for you not to practice the discipline of scripture memory. Uh, Number one is probably the greatest of all. It's lack of application. It's head knowledge without heart knowledge. Uh, There's a common verse in Psalm 119 that's given for memorization that I stored God's word in my heart that I would not sin against. That I would not sin against God. The problem is that's not memorization. It's not a question of you sticking the word of God here. Where does it need to be? According to Psalm 119, where does it need to be? Right here. That's where it needs to be. And that's what we heard this morning from Lois out of James. Right? Don't be merely hearers of the word. You need to be a doer of God's word. I'll tell you, the Pharisees above all achieved memorization credibility and skill but what does jesus say to them in verse three he says do not do what they do for they do not practice what they preach and so the greatest danger of memorization is lack of application second one i wrote down was legalism i pray that'll never be a problem in this church that you think god's more impressed with you because you know more verses than your neighbor oh sinner Recognize the danger in your heart for that. You're using the dynamite wrong if that's why you're memorizing scripture. Thirdly, I wrote this down, out of context memorization. Um, I saw above the, the door as you're headed out to the football field, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Is that in the Bible? Yes. Do I have it memorized? Yes. Is that what it means? No, that's not what. <coughs> and so, so when you memorize scripture, make sure that you're memorizing it in the correct context 
Fourthly, it's related to legalism. It's a form of self-righteousness. It's not a question of how much in the word you are. It's rather a question of how much of the word is in you. Can I say that again? It's not a question of how much you are in the word. That's what the Pharisees did. It is rather a question of how much of God's word is saturated into your life that it can be seen in application. And so this is the fourth and final. And this is the place that's missing from Matthew chapter 23. We saw it already in verse 3. Do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. And so there's only one right way for you and I to use this greatest resource. And that's to apply it in our lives. And sometimes that will also look like uh, meditation. Sometimes the greatest application for you is to meditate on God's word. I'm hoping that you caught that from Lois this morning as well. She read for us in Psalm 1. Psalm 1. We don't got to get very far in the Psalms till you find this truth being taught. You, you, will be a, you will be blessed in your life as you discernibly stay further away from the identity of those who follow after sin patterns in their life. And the very best way for you to do that is that you will meditate on God's word day and night. The psalmist says, you're like a tree that's planted by the source of life. A stream. In that stream, this living water that comes to you from God's kindness will make it so that your fruit shows up every season. So that your leaf never withers. Thank you, Becky. Amen. Church, I want you to know that it's the application of God's word in your life that matters. James says, otherwise you're like some fool who looks at himself in the mirror, turns away and forgets what's there. And so here's, here's the answer. You really ought to pay less attention in the application of God's word to the speck in the eye of your brother. Because you have a boulder. You have a boulder in your own heart and life. And God has given you a very great resource to break up those rocks. It is his word. And if we're directing this as a weapon against others, you're going to find, you're going to find it's going to bring pain and division within the body. But if instead you take the word of God like a mirror, as James says, and apply it onto your own life, and in so doing, meditate on it, you will see the transforming power of God to change not just you, but to change a society, a community, a family of Christ followers to love each other. And this is God's greatest resource that he has given you in discipleship. I just put this verse up on the screen, Hebrews 4. The word of God is alive and active, sharper like a, like a joinery tool in a carpenter's workshop, sharper than any double-edged sword. 
It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So I want to offer to you just four applications this morning when it comes to the Bible. Number one, read with spiritual health. Um, You were never designed to encounter God's word alone. It's going to have very little practicality to to you if you're always alone. God has designed his word to be found read and therefore understood in community. The very first community is the indwelling of God's spirit. That's the very first relationship that God desires to bring illumination onto understanding. But the second is this right here, that it is within the church that God has given pastors and teachers He has given us one another that we can understand what God's word says. And so as you come to spend time in God's word, you and I, we live in this embarrassment of riches. And you have been taught by culture and probably a litany of devotionals that you need to go and read God's word in your closet. And that's okay. That's not like that's not like a bad thing. It's just. That's not the thing that's going to help you most. Now, maybe for some of us, that's exactly what you need to do. But I cannot get around the fact that you need spiritual help. I need spiritual help. And so next time you open your Bible, say a little prayer. Lord, help me to see. Give me eyes to see and ears to hear that which you've spoken to me. Spirit of God, I yield my heart to your leading. Show me what is true. Secondly, you, need to, you and I, we need to study onto personal application. That's why you study the Bible. I, I just need to confess to you, I, I don't know, maybe still this is so ingrained in my life that I make mistakes on this. If you ask my wife, she'll tell you I like to argue. That's not true. <laughs> um. There, there is a lot of time that I spend in defense of the Christian faith in studying the scriptures. I need to do a better job of personal application of God's word. And my guess is if I've neglected that in my life, maybe you need to do better as well. You and I study, not that we would be puffed up in our understanding, but that we study so that our rocky, stony hearts are able to receive the resource of the explosive power of God's word to do what nothing else on earth can do to change our hearts. Thirdly, memorization ought to be given for a life of worship. Why do you memorize the Bible? Well, it's not to impress (coughs) me. I know a bunch of you were concerned about that. Uh, the, the, re- the reason why you memorize the Bible is not to win some award for whoever gets the most verses. That's, l- listen, the reason why you memorize the scriptures is because storing the word of God into your heart will be for you a resource like nothing else in those darkest of moments. When you feel alone, and questioning 
It is the application of truth that God has allowed you to retain right up here that's needed right here. And that will lead for you to a life of worship, to find comfort, to find hope, to find help, and to find joy. If you have not experienced that, this is my challenge to you. Pick one verse. Just start there. Uh, One of the things I've told my son to do in reading the Proverbs, I tell him to do this every morning, is to pick one. Pick a proverb. Don't read read the whole book. Just pick one and there will be one and they're easy and you could do this as well. So I'm telling the whole church and let that one for that day be what you memorize. Memorize it. Say it over and over again. Say the first word and 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 then read it again and emphasize the second word and then read it again and emphasize the third word until you have all the words just locked into your heart. And then let that verse walk with you the whole day and you will be amazed at what God will show you through that day, that you will, you'd be hiding it in your heart. And then finally, meditate and apply. Uh, and, and we do this for transformation. Well, there's a word for that, and this is this word. That's what it is. Because it's only a disciple who applies God's word. The Pharisees didn't. They'd kick your butt in memorization. They studied it more than you. They read it all the time but they didn't apply it unto their lives. Only disciples do that. Now, to wrap this up this morning, I cannot read to you Matthew 23 without catching the context that Matthew puts this in because Matthew didn't write the chapter breaks. So look with me one more time in the Bible. And I want you to back up into Matthew chapter 22. Because Matthew is going to record all of these, the harshest indictments against the Pharisees, but he will do so in the context of how you and I must learn to apply God's word. Matthew 22, verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher! Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied. By the way, before I read it, and you know it, but before I do, what was the question? Which is the greatest commandment in the whole of the law? That's the question. That's what we're looking at right now. Right? Watch Jesus' answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Watch this now, verse 40. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Let me break that down real quick. What was it? Love who? God on the vertical, and then second commandment, love who? On the horizontal. We have within Jewish tradition two aspects of their breakdown within the law. One that is civil and one that is ceremonial. They have 613 laws to which you can divide into those that they would use for participation in worship and those with how they would live in society. Can I just tell you? That's just two. That's 
how you love God in worship, and that's how you love your neighbor in society. Do you know that the Ten Commandments can be broken down into two categories? The first four all deal with you and who? God. The first four are all about loving God. And then starting in five, the back six are all referenced between you and who? You and your neighbor. Do you see the pattern here? There's only two. There's only two and they both, they both rely on love. Jesus is the one who says all the rest of it, all the law and prophets hang on these two. While I was preparing this message the other day, uh, this was a Friday, Sadie got home from school and I was hemming and hawing over how am I going to communicate this paradox to the church. And she came down and she said, Daddy, do you want to see the puzzle that I made at school? And I said very sternly and kindly, Sadie, I'm busy right now. And I shooed her away. She went and I sat there and I read the text over and I read it and I read it and after about five minutes I was like what a fool I am look at me neglecting my greater responsibilities for what? for studying the word reading the word and so I said Sadie! (laughs) and I called her back down to me and I had her climb up on my lap and I said I just need you to know that you are so much more important to me than whatever it is that I'm doing and that I love you so much. Because what is the entire purpose of the law? All of your study, all of your reading, what is its purpose? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And so church, this is my challenge to you. If you want to be a disciple, there is no greater tool that God's given you than his word. It is the greatest thing that you have. You live in an embarrassment of riches. Get into it. Read it. Study it. Memorize it. Apply it in your lives. But do not fail at recognizing its purpose. The purpose of God's word is that you will love God and that you will love your neighbor. Amen? Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help. I I thank you that you are able to even shape my heart and help me to see how much progress I need to yet make in the application of truth in my life. I pray for my friends today, God, that they would be motivated not by guilt. Lord, do not let the enemy have a word of influence to convince a single person that you will love them an ounce more because they spend time in your word. But rather that they would spend time in your word because you love them. And then speak to us all, God. We ask that in our own desire to pursue discipleship, help to grow us. And may that growth be seen manifest in the application of love onto one another. For we ask this now in Jesus' name we pray. All God's children say.